Well, we just finished a series called On Mission. And in that series, we were talking about the mission of this church and the mission of the big church and the mission God's placed in all of our hearts and how we can come together as a church to live on mission in Jesus' name. And today we're starting a series called United. Because if we're going to be on mission in Jesus' name, we got to be united on that mission. And we have to be a people of unity. And so we're going to talk about unity in a few different areas. Today I'm going to talk about how you fight for unity in your own heart. Next week we're going to talk about it in the context of relationships. And, and then we'll talk about it in the context of that mission that we serve alongside the church. After that, we're having our eight-year birthday party as a church. We're turning eight years old. Come on, somebody. Second graders, here we go. And then uh, after we have our big birthday party on the 25th, then we're going to be kicking off Binge the Bible Season 2, which is going to take us up to Easter. That's a little preview of your spring here at the Gathering Church. It's going to be a great season for us. Well, this series, United, is one that I think is, is big on my heart right now. Something that I really feel like we have to make it a priority to learn how to fight for unity in, in, as a church and as a people. Because unity is important to Jesus, and so it needs to be important to us. And we're living in some really divisive times, culturally. Everywhere you look, there's division. There's division in our homes. There's division at the family tables. There's division in our workplaces. There's division all around us. And we've been called to be a people, not of division, but a people of unity. I know that unity is important to Jesus because of the things that Jesus prayed for and the things that Jesus said. John's gospel is 21 chapters long. And out of those 21 chapters, seven chapters take place in about 36 hours. One third of the gospel of John is about what Jesus said and did on Thursday and Friday and Sunday of what we call the Passion Week. I believe this tells us that the teachings of that Thursday night, that night of the Last Supper, that night of the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus would be arrested and tried to be crucified, I believe that everything that happened in that window of time is extremely important to our faith. And so in that evening, that night, when Jesus and the disciples go to the upper room for what would become the Last Supper, Jesus began the evening by washing the feet of the disciples, including the feet of Judas Iscariot, who Jesus knew had already been paid to betray him. He washed his feet and served him. And then he tells the disciples that this is how they are supposed to love and serve people. He says this in John chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our love for each other is our presentation of the gospel to the world. Love each other. 
this is how the world you will know you are mine. This isn't the only time that Jesus would say something like that, would put such an importance on the way that we love one another, the way that we remain united with one another. We see it again in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Apostle John is nearby, but we've, we know that from the Gospel accounts that he was falling asleep the whole time. But in between sleeping, he heard the prayers that Jesus was praying in these final moments and recorded them for us in the Gospel of John. And I believe that these prayers are of extreme importance to us as followers of Jesus to know what was so important to the heart of Jesus that it would become his final prayer before the trials that would lead to his crucifixion. Here's what Jesus prayed right after he finished praying for the 12 disciples. Chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, for the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That means you and me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That they may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our ability to be unified as a people of God is our testimony that we have been sent by God. Can you grasp how important this is to Jesus? He knows this is his final prayer before death and resurrection. And when his prayers turn to you and I, The first thing that he wants, and really the only prayer that he has for us, is that we would be unified as a people. Our unity is our clearest presentation of the gospel. Now shift from the garden of Gethsemane to the world we live in today. The state of the church today. Christianity today here in our country. Our reputation before the world is in shambles. For many reasons, some are our fault. Some are not our fault. I can't change the things about this world that I cannot change, but I can take ownership for the things that are up to me. If we, the church, fight for unity, the world around us will begin to notice. We have to be a people who fight for unity. And in our culture, we have to fight hard for unity for a lot of reasons. It's an election year. I don't know if you knew that, if you're keeping track. Election years have gotten a little bit tense in the past. There's been a little bit of division, at least in my neighborhood, around election years. There's been division in my city. There's been division in the schools my children go to. There's been division uh, in families. There's division around this time of year. And we're being intentionally divided by the world that we're living in. Maybe the division that you're facing has nothing to do with the worldviews of the people around you. Maybe it's a hundred other reasons that unity has been hard for you. Maybe you've been wrapped up in conflict. Maybe you've been hurt in relationships. Maybe you've discovered the universal truth that community is hard because people are broken. Whatever the reason that we need it, we're going to be committed to fighting for unity. Today, we're going to start by talking about one of the greatest enemies of unity that appears in our lives. Offense. And I know that offense can be a tense subject, a fresh subject. Offense, and talking about it, has a tendency to be offensive. You might get offended today. 
And that's okay. It'll give you a great opportunity to work out what you learned in this message. I want you to know as I begin a message on offense and forgiveness that I am not sharing with you something that I have mastered or something that I am perfect at. I have been offended. I have offended people. And I am trying to get better. And I am asking God to work on my heart. And what I've always tried to do from this stage is share with you what God is doing in me. And so that's what this message is today. It is from my heart about the place where my heart is today, right now, and what God is doing in it. We have a staff core value. We are unoffendable. We say we have thick skin, soft hearts, and we live for an audience of one. Why is that important to our staff? Because in ministry, we work with people, and people are messy, and we are people. And we are messy sometimes. And so if we're going to love people and love them well, we have got to have thick skin, soft hearts, and we've got to live for an audience of one. If we're going to love people well as a ministry staff, we have to be unoffendable. When I was younger in ministry, I asked a mentor one time, how did, how did he do this? How did he do it? He had just retired after 40 plus years of ministry, and he's one of the most joyful people I'd ever known. He still loved God, he loved people, and he loved the church. And you may not know this, but that is kind of a rare thing. As pastors retire, I know a lot of guys who did ministry for a long time, and they're pretty wounded by the end of it, hurt by the end of it, bitter by the end of it. And here was this man who just loved the church as much as he, as, as he did the day he was saved. And I said, Pastor, how did, the, how did you do this? What's the secret? Because I had just gone through a hard thing, really my first hard thing in ministry, and I was pretty hurting and worn down. And I said, how do you keep from getting hurt? And he said, John Mark, he laughed at me, which was mean. And he said, John Mark, you can't keep from getting hurt. You're going to get hurt. If you love people well, you're going to get hurt. You just have to learn how to hurt in a way that is healthy. And then you have to learn how to heal. That's what we're going to try to learn today. We're going to learn about rising above an offense. Here's two books that have helped to shape this message and that will help you if you're working this out the way that I am. First, a book by John Bevere called The Bait of Satan. Do not buy this book for your mother-in-law, okay? If you give, the title is tough. If you give someone a book called The Bait of Satan, that is called being passive-aggressive, and it's a divisive move. (laughs) Buy this book only for yourself and read it, and then hide it. Don't leave it out on the coffee table when you invite certain people over. The other book is called Unoffendable by Brant Hansen. If you're really struggling with trying to let things go right now and working things out in your heart, uh, or maybe you've just always struggled with that, you're a high justice person and you struggle with letting things go, then you've got to read these books. I believe they're a great resource and they can help you as you process and learn how to be united with the people of God. My goal in this message and in this series 
is really just to help us move into a greater unity than our city has ever seen because our city is our responsibility and the church needs to be a beacon of light in this dark world. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. A person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So what does this proverb mean for us? To overlook an offense. Doesn't mean we pretend it didn't happen, because that I don't like. I don't want to pretend things didn't happen. Am I just supposed to overlook it every time somebody hurts my feelings? Every time somebody does something awful to me? Every time somebody hurts me? Do I just pretend it didn't happen? To overlook an offense? That's not what it means. What it means is that if we want to live a godly life, we have to learn how to be a little bit more like Elsa. we got to learn how to let it go. I have small children. We have to learn how to forgive. We have to learn, this passage is telling us, what it means is that we cannot let these things get into our hearts. Overlook here comes from a Hebrew word meaning to pass over or to fly higher. It means we got to learn how to rise above these offenses. And this is important because if we cannot rise above offenses, those offenses are going to seep down into our souls. They'll distract us and they'll keep us from not only God's calling, but from the joy and the peace that God has made for you to experience. Your life is too short and your calling is too big to live offended. The book of James says that life is a vapor. It's short. It's a mist. You're here one moment and then you're gone. And our purpose, declared all throughout the Bible, is big. We have been called as the people of God, to be the voice of God, the hands of God, the feet of God in the world that we are living in, to glorify God and serve others. Our calling is to make disciples. We talked about this over the last few weeks, that people in this world are depending upon us to expose them to the life-changing love of Christ. We can't get distracted from that purpose. My life is too short, and my calling is too great to be brought down by an offense. And you hear it, maybe you think, but pastor, you don't know what I've been through. I might not know, but I have lived through pain. So did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was chased out of multiple towns by the same people that he used to work with. He started out as a highly esteemed Pharisee, a a leader in the church at the time, in the Jewish church at the time. And He was respected everywhere he went. In fact, he was widely known. They knew him from one town to the next. But when he began to follow Jesus and to preach the name of Jesus from town to town, all those people who once sang his praises were now singing his curses. They were hunting him down, arresting him, throwing him in jails. There's a story where the Apostle Paul is taken by the Jewish leaders, the men that he once knew, the men that he once worked with, dragged outside the city walls where they stoned him until they thought he was dead. They threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. And then the Bible says he just got up. And walked back into town and kept preaching the name of Jesus. He knew what it felt like to be hurt by the people that you once loved. He knew what it felt like to be attacked by people he never expected to be attacked from. He knew what it felt like to be angry and to carry this kind of pain. 
And despite all of that, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger in this passage is implied. It's understood by Paul to be something that we're all going to experience. Anger is not a sin. It's normal to get angry. It's okay to get angry. Anger is the appropriate response at times. Anger is not the sin, but oftentimes sin comes out of our anger. The longer that we sit in our anger and with our anger, the more likely we are to sin in our anger. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, you are going to get angry, but you cannot choose to stay angry. Even worse, you cannot choose to live angry. Being offended is inevitable, but living offended is a choice. We do this when we let something upset us to our core, and then we just let it live there. When something offends us, and so we just choose to dwell in that offense, to set up camp there, to allow it to dominate our worldview. Something hurts us in such a way that we believe the only way that we can respond is to stay offended and to stay angry. Because if we release it, we are releasing the very people who offended us from responsibility. We're saying it's okay that they hurt us in this way. We're giving them the the excuse to keep hurting people in that way. The only way that we can be justified in what happened to us is to hold on to this offense and let it live in our hearts. But Paul tells us that when we make the choice to hold on to our anger, All we are really doing is giving a space for our enemy to move in. Living in anger is saying to the enemy, there is room for you to work in my heart. I don't want that. Sometimes we hear this passage, and there's this part where Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And we we make it smaller uh, of a nugget than it was meant to be. We use it in premarital counseling. We tell couples, don't go to bed angry. And that message cost me a lot of sleep early on in my marriage. Uh, And here's what I found after about a year of marriage. I don't get any nicer the more tired that I get. (laughs) My capacity to forgive only decreases as we move past my bedtime. And my bedtime is 9.30 p.m. And so I stayed up till 2 a.m. before arguing with my wife, realizing we were saying the same things over and over again because the pastor told us we couldn't go to bed angry. And we wake up mattered in a hornet anyways after passing out. What I have found is that sometimes a little sleep makes the offense seem less offensive. Sometimes a little rest gives me perspective in order to move on from this offense. And so if you've received that advice before, I'm very sorry. Go to bed next time. But here's what this passage means. It means if I go to bed and I leave that anger in my heart when I wake up the next day, and I say, this is where it lives now, and I don't ever deal with it, I don't, I don't confront it, I don't have anything to, I don't have any way to, to uh, ever have the conversation about it, then instead of actually being better, what I'm doing is giving the devil a room in my heart to live. This passage doesn't mean that you have to stay up all night, but it does mean that you cannot hold anger in your heart for any period of time. you got to deal with it, and you got to deal with it quickly. 
we have to release our anger. And we have to release offenses. And if we do not do that, we are only hurting ourselves. Now maybe you're thinking at this point in the message, this is good. My wife needs to hear this. That's not how this works. Change does not begin in the person sitting next to you. It can only begin with me. And this is important because often we hear a message that is hard to live out, like this one. And we start thinking about all the people that we know that need to live it out. you got all these names rattling around in your head right now that you hope hear this message, but this message is for you. It's for you to hear. Change doesn't begin in the house next door. And unity doesn't begin across the room. These things can only begin in the mirror. It begins with me. Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How could you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I need you to know, this is a message about what I'm working out in my heart. And it needs to be a message about what you are working out in your hearts. This isn't for you to start getting the YouTube link and sending it to everybody that you know. This is for you to begin to process and heal and move ahead and move on from offenses yourself. So what do I do to become unoffendable? How do I become unoffendable in an extremely offensive world? Here's some practical things that you can do. Number one is this. Adjust your expectations of others. If you want everyone around you to be perfect, then you are always going to be let down. People aren't perfect. Nobody in here is perfect. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. So often we hold people to this standard that we can't hold up ourselves. Or we hold people to the same standard we hold ourselves to, but we forget that they're not us. They haven't lived the same life that I have lived. They haven't been wired the way that I'm wired. They're not you. We have to know that we are imperfect and the people around us are imperfect as well. First and second Timothy are letters written by the apostle Paul to a younger pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was pastoring a church that Paul planted. And in both letters, you see some advice from a mentor to a mentee. And in second Timothy, Paul tells his protege what to expect from people. And it's a really encouraging passage. Chapter three, verse two. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul was not an optimist. But this is a reality. Paul warns Timothy that the further we get away from Jesus' ascension into heaven and the closer we get to Jesus' return to this earth, the more we're going to see people like this. And he warns him, he says, don't give too much of your energy and time to people like this. But the reality that we know from the whole context of Paul's writings 
is that these are the people that we are called to bring the gospel to. And sometimes these are the people who have already received the gospel. And sometimes these people are us. And this is why we need Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We are desperate for change, and so is the person across the table. We need to understand that people are going to let us down. If you come into church thinking it won't happen here, this is a different kind of community. These are different kinds of people. The unfortunate reality is that it will happen here. That these are still people. That a a church, and a good church, is not filled with perfect people. It's filled with people who are pursuing a life of perfection. That means that all of our brokenness still follows us sometimes. And while you may still experience this kind of hurt here, I do think that you can experience a unique kind of healing here that the world can't offer you. People are still going to let us down. Leaders will let you down. The church will let you down. I will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your family will let you down. This is the kind of encouragement you came to church for this Sunday morning. I know that it doesn't sound very encouraging, but I'm telling you that having the right expectations is the key to living a joyful life. Community is just not always going to meet your highest expectations. In premarital counseling, sometimes I'll write on my whiteboard two words on opposite sides, expectation and reality. Then I'll show the space between and say, this is the disappointment gap. Now, how many of us in our first year of marriage found that the disappointment gap was wide and deep between our expectations and our reality? We need to adjust our expectations to be closer to reality, to bridge that gap, to avoid the disappointment and resentment that would follow. I know that this is a downer. But we have to understand this truth because if we understand this truth, then we can have grace for it. If we know that people aren't perfect, we are able to have grace for people. Now, I don't mean to tell you that people are all bad. People are also very good. People are incredible. They'll surprise you. They'll show up when you didn't even know that you needed somebody to show up. They'll encourage you. They'll support you. They'll help you heal. They'll help you find freedom. They'll be around you when you need them to be. People will also be one of the greatest blessings in your life. But you have to understand that it's also an expectation of mine that none of them are perfect and they all have the capacity to let me down. Jesus lived with this understanding and was filled with grace and a love for people regardless. Look at what Jesus went through. In Luke chapter 9, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven after Jesus has just spent an entire year with them telling them how they were going to be the last. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he's trying to help them understand humility and a servant's heart and what his kingdom is all about. And they're still saying, hey, which one of us is going to be the most important, Jesus? In Matthew chapter 20, we see James and John's mother go to Jesus and say, can, which, can one of my sons have the closest seats to you in your kingdom? Can they have one on the right and one on the left so that they're the most important of all these disciples? Can you imagine after three years of this point of teaching people about serving and humility and they are still asking you to be the best? That must have been disappointing. 
At the Last Supper, it says in John 13, after Jesus had just had another one of these conversations the day before, it says the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He knew that in this room was betrayal, disappointment, and people who didn't understand him after all this time. And his choice was to love them, to serve them, and to show them how to love. That very night when Jesus was arrested, Peter ran away and denied that he ever even knew Jesus three different times. In fact, all the disciples would flee and only John would be there at the cross in Jesus' hour of need. And yet, every single one of them he forgave in a moment of forgiveness. Peter, who had denied Jesus, got this conversation face to face where Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus restored him three times. Every time that he turned on him, he gave him the opportunity to come back. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We have to adjust our expectations of people, and then we have to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And here's what else we do to be unoffendable. We raise our gratitude for God's grace. We become unoffendable by constantly reminding ourselves of how good God's grace has been in our own lives. When I turn my focus from all that you've done to all that I've done, and when I turn from all I can't forgive you for to all that I have already been forgiven for, it changes my perspective. I know that I don't deserve the grace that I've been given. Paul expresses this in Romans chapter 7. He says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. His attention was fixated on how desperately he needed the grace of God. How the grace of God had rescued him, changed him, and transformed him. And even though the whole world was coming up against him and opposing him and attacking him, he was able to keep his gratitude for the grace that he had been given first and foremost on his mind. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I could go on and on and on. God's grace for me is so, so good. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that power, Christ's power may rest upon me. I've got to stay in a place where I'm too busy being grateful to be offended. John 8 tells this beautiful story. A woman is caught in the act of adultery. In the act, they dragged her out of a married man's bed. And the penalty for that in this culture is death for the woman. 
So they decide to see if Jesus would follow the law, and they throw her at his feet and ask him what he's going to do. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who began to go away, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. These men were, they were ready to kill. They were so offended at the sin that they'd caught this person in that they were ready to kill her and wanted Jesus to lead them there. But as they held the stone, the way that Jesus showed mercy and grace and spared this woman's life was to encourage them to look at the grace that they had already received. Which one of you here is without sin? Let him throw the first stone. And it says the older dropped their stones first because they looked back at the span of their life and the incredible amount of grace they had received and found that they were not worthy to throw that stone. And they released it. And some of us in this room today, we're holding on to those stones. We are ready to throw them. We're poised and we're angry and we're offended and we're ready to let them fly. And the only way that we're going to be able to release these stones is to look within and to study the grace that has already been given to us. And when we begin to understand and grasp the level of grace that God has put upon us, that we've been given, the things that I have been forgiven for, my grip on that rock gets looser and looser and it falls at my feet. But, but they lied. But I've lied too. But they broke my trust. But I've broken trust too. But they hurt me. But I've hurt people too. Whatever the level of offense, there is a level of grace that I have already received. And with that, and the last thing that we do to be unoffendable is we learn how to forgive. No matter what. When they don't deserve it. When they don't ask for it. When they don't want it. When it's hard, we forgive. And we forgive because we have been forgiven. There is a passage, I think it's one of the scariest passages in Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, Jesus is teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest collection of sermons, is really focused on how we love people and how we love our enemies the things that God considers sin and the things versus the things we consider sin and the justice of God versus the justice of man and the grace of God versus the grace of man. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This appears, this idea, this sentiment, over and over in the Bible. If I have been forgiven, it is my responsibility to forgive. Even to the point where, how can I receive forgiveness if I'm not willing to give forgiveness? 
And I know that's a hard one to swallow because how could I forgive? I'm still bleeding. My heart is still in pieces on the floor and you don't know what it felt like and, and how, how, how much it hurt, how much it still hurts, what they said, what they did, the things that have been done, you can't even begin to understand. How could I forgive? Because if I forgive, I'm saying it's okay that that happened. And if I forgive, I'm excusing them and there's no justice and there's freedom when they deserve to be locked up for what happened. How could I let that go? How could I forgive? Because of how you have been forgiven. Because the truth is that my sin should have put me under the ground. My sin doesn't deserve the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, because of the way that I've hurt others, because of the things that I've done in my life that have caused wounds, because I don't deserve to be forgiven, because I turned my back on the one who made me. And yet, in his compassion, and his mercy, and his goodness, and his grace, he became the sacrifice for my sin that I may be forgiven. He died so that I could receive forgiveness. And I'm not just forgiven, but he resurrected three days later so that not only could I be forgiven, but that I could receive life, eternal life, that I could be with him in paradise despite my ugliness, despite my sin, despite what I truly deserve, I get to spend paradise, eternity in paradise with the one who made me. And if I've been forgiven like that, then there is no offense that I cannot forgive. And it's hard. And it's really hard. Because we think that all these things, we think that holding on to our anger and our bitterness and our unforgiveness is somehow punishing these people that we're mad at. But the truth is, we're only punishing ourselves. Being bitter and hoping that it hurts the other person is like drinking poison every day and hoping someone else dies. So how do I forgive? You have to start with your anger. Because your anger gives the devil a foothold in your heart. Your anger will become a seed of bitterness. And the bitterness will grow out of your heart and into your soul and infect every part of your body. It will affect everything you touch and everyone you know. Out of bitter roots grow bitter fruits. And so I have to dig it out. I have to release it. I have to start by giving up my anger. How do I do that? Because I'm angry. And how do I forgive? Because I know that I need to and I want to, but I don't know, I don't know how. Forgiving is hard, but the process is really simple. You start to release your anger by turning your attention to God. Worship God. Worship Him. Worship Him in your anger. Bring angry prayers to Him. Tell Him how you feel, how you've been hurt, what you felt. I'm a father. 
And the hardest thing for me to hear is from one of my children to tell me that someone hurt them. And I always want them to tell me. And so does your father. He wants to know. And so you release your anger by worship. Worship every day and have gratitude for his grace. Say it out loud, God. You've given me grace for this and this and this. And I thank you for it. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your forgiveness. Start on your heart right there. God, thank you for the ways that you've covered me in grace. Thank you for the things that you've forgiven me for. Call out sins that he has forgiven. God, thank you for forgiving me for my... Fill in the blank. Worship him. And worship him honestly and wholly. And then you forgive and you release that anger by praying for the people that have offended you. Bit by bit, asking God to help you let it go. And those prayers, just, God, I worship you today. I thank you for the grace that you've given me. You've covered me in grace for so many sins. I know that there's so many things that I've done that I don't deserve this access that I have to you right now, but I have it because you are so good and so full of grace and mercy, and I worship you in Jesus' name. And I want to pray, Father, for the anger that I'm having a hard time letting go of. I need help. I don't want the devil to get a foothold in my heart. What I want is for your name to be famous. And I want to see fruit that comes from your Holy Spirit coming out of my heart and out of my life. And so I ask that you would search my heart, O God, and reveal to me anything that is unclean. Show me the anger that I'm holding. Show me the bitterness that I'm holding. And in Jesus' name, break those chains. Let me be freed from it, God. Get it out of me. Get it out of me so that you can replace it with yourself. Replace it with your fruits gentleness, kindness, self-control. God, put those things in me instead. And I want to pray for the people that have hurt me. And first, you just pray for them. You say their names out loud. You say their names out loud to your Father. You ask for God to help you to forgive them, to give you grace for them, to give you love for them. God, I want to love my enemies, and I don't know how. Would you give me that kind of love? Would you change my heart? And maybe in the beginning, you, you, you know, your prayers are kind of like, God, I, I pray for bees to attack them, Lord. I, I pray for new allergies that they never expected. Take dairy from them, God, in Jesus' name. And in the beginning, maybe that's what it looks like. Your prayers are angry, but that's okay. You pray for them every day, and you keep going until eventually, and here's what my heart is doing right now, what I'm asking for. There's, there's things I'm working through, and I'm asking God for blessing and favor over every name. God, I ask that you would put your holy favor on these names. I ask that you would put your blessings on them. I ask that you would turn your Holy Spirit's power loose within them. That just you would begin to change in Jesus' name everyone that they come around. And over time, you may be faking that in the beginning. You may just be saying it. That's okay. Keep praying it. And over time, God begins a work in your heart that is completed, and you'll know it is when you begin to mean those things, and you want that blessing, and you want it. Then you see forgiveness come real and come true in your heart, and, and you'll see those things start to change within you. Every single day, worship God, have gratitude for His grace, and pray for the people who have offended you, and you will begin to learn what it means to live unoffendable. 
And we're going to live unoffendable. We're going to be a people who are unoffendable, church, because we, are, we have to live united in Jesus' name so that we can complete the work that we've been placed on this earth to do in Jesus' name. Now, if you're in here today, and this has always been hard for you, letting things go, forgiving, letting offenses not control your heart and your life, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I wanna tell you that that's the starting point. That's where it begins. You need him, you need his grace, you need his power in order to work through these hard things. And so if you're ready to take that step, every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just say this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin, for my sin. Forgive me for all the mistakes that I've made. I need you, I believe in you. All that I am, I am yours. In Jesus' name. And one more prayer before we go. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you need to pray a prayer of forgiveness today. Maybe there's something that you've been holding in your heart that it's time to begin the process of letting it go. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help me to feel gratitude for the grace I've received. Give me eyes to see all the ways that you have forgiven me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would create in me a new heart. Help me to forgive those who have offended me. These things that I've been holding tight in my fist, I open them up to you. Help me to let them go. I want to be free of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.